Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you haven't already, grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 8. If you are a guest and you need a copy of God's Word, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's paperback. If you need to take that home with you, that's our gift to you. Uh, and we are going to be in Romans chapter 8. So uh, I'll just tell you, we had a great time together, the early service, walking through this chapter. This chapter, or this, this section is one of those uh, gems in the jewel that is the book of Romans. If you are uh, visiting with us, we're walking verse by verse through this great uh, New Testament book of Romans. There's also a reading plan online that you can follow. And I, I'm quite sure that if you have read through some of these passages before you come in here on Sunday morning, man, it will increase your uh, ability just to be transformed by this passage. So I encourage you to read through the reading plan. And uh, I, I just got to tell you, if, if, I didn't, if I didn't believe that that God still transforms lives through His Word, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing as a pastor. And I also just got to tell you in full honesty and, and transparency and vulnerability this morning, there are some times that I stand to preach and it is with great excitement and joy that I can't wait to do it. And at the same time, there is this fear and intrepidation of the weight and loftiness of what we're about ready to read and study together. Romans chapter 8 might be one of those high water marks of all the Bible. And I'm convinced if, if we as God's people, this, this Romans chapter 8, we were there last week, we're going to be there for two more weeks. If we would get the truths of Romans chapter 8 into our lives by the Spirit of God, it is absolutely life transformational for us in every area of life. So, man, I pray that we are attuned this morning, and I pray we're alert, and we're awake, and we're ready to go through this realist journey of Romans chapter 8 this morning. So, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this way. We'll, we'll get to verse 12, verse 13 in just a minute, but let me kind of introduce where we're going like this. You know, if you read the Gospels and you study the life of Jesus, Jesus said some pretty hard things. <laughs> he said some things sometimes that the disciples, when they heard it, they just really didn't understand what he meant, or... Or what was the implications of what he just said. In John chapter 14, you don't have to turn there, but it's just a few days before Jesus is going to go to the cross. And Jesus to this group of disciples that he had spent three and a half years with at this point. They have watched him do incredible miracles. They've watched him show great demonstrations of power. He has taught them. He has loved them. He has counseled them. He has been there with them for almost three and a half years. And Jesus comes to his disciples and here's what he says. Fellas, I'm going away. I'm leaving. 
And they had no idea of all the implications of that. And they couldn't even wrestle in their mind. And if that wasn't enough to kind of wake him up, he went on and he said, And I want to tell you something, fellas. It's better for me. It's better for you that I go away. He said this. You don't have to turn there. But John 16, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Our human minds just think about that. What could be better than walking day in and day out, having conversations, eating meals, watching the power of Jesus. What could be better than being a disciple, walking with Jesus as these men did? Jesus says, I'll tell you something that's better. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And Jesus elaborates on this later. He says, my very spirit, the Holy Spirit, not an it, not a force, that the third person of the Trinity, God himself in the spirit, will come and dwell in you. And Jesus basically says, and I'll quote Pastor J.D. Greer, says, the spirit of Jesus in us is better than Jesus walking beside us. Amen? That was true for those disciples, that's true for us today, and the implications of the reality that we are partakers of the very divine nature of God dwelling within us, Paul lays out in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, you could call the life in the Spirit. What are the implications? What are the applications? What are these eternity-altering truths that are true of us because of faith in Christ, that are a, real, a reality because of the Spirit in us. Now we've got a big truth. We looked at that last week. It's going to kind of guide us for all four weeks. We're in chapter 8. And here's your big truth kind of as a reminder. The Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus. That ought to be mind-boggling to us. The very Spirit of God indwells every follower of Jesus. At the moment of faith and repentance, at the moment you're made alive, the moment you trust Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says you are sealed by the very Spirit of God. He comes to indwell every believer. And what that means for your life, what that means to walk in the Spirit, as Paul says, we're no longer according to the flesh. We now walk according to the Spirit, in step of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8 begins with the statement that Daniel quoted earlier, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's shouting ground, by the way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8 ends with, And I say that neither death, nor height, nor principality, nor things present, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can ever separate us from God and His love. So here in Romans 8, you've got there's no condemnation in Christ, and there will never be separation from Christ. Why are those things true? Because of the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit of Jesus in us. It's a reality for you this morning if you know Christ by faith. 
So what are the implications of all this? We looked at a few of them last week. We, we did three big ideas last week. I'm going to add two more to that. This is kind of part two of life in the Spirit, if you will. But Paul taught us last week. We saw from the Word. How can you say there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus? Never now, never ever will there be condemnation. How is that true? We saw last week. It is the Spirit that sets us free. So last week, the Spirit sets us free from the, the law of sin and death that we were We were under the curse of sin and death. The Spirit has given us life, set us free, and given us the capacity to obey God and to walk with God that we didn't have before. We were enslaved to sin, now we're enslaved to righteousness. We walk in obedience to God by the power of the Spirit. Secondly, we saw last week, the Spirit sets our minds. The Spirit makes us whole. He makes us complete. He changes our perspective. He changes the way we think. He changes our minds. He allows us to see things differently than we did before. We have a new worldview, a new mindset. We see things differently. We understand things differently. Why? Because we're transformed people. Jesus said you must be born again. Part of that rebirth by the Spirit is you have a new mindset. You look at things different. You pursue things differently. You desire things you didn't desire before. Why in the world is there a room full of people hearing some loudmouth guy singing songs that the world doesn't even understand gathered here on rainy Sunday morning in East Tennessee? Why are we here? Because the Spirit has set our minds to desire heavenly God-honoring things that we did not desire before. The Spirit does that. The Spirit changes us and transforms us. And then thirdly, we saw that the Spirit makes us alive. You have life in you, child of God. You have life that's the Spirit. Even though you are encapsulated and still carrying around this old sinful flesh that we'll talk about and all its propensities and all its tendencies that are still active, you got life in you, and that's the Spirit of Jesus dwelling in you. All the implications of that. So Paul here, I want you to follow his thought. He says, man, for the child of God, there's no condemnation. You've been set free. You've been made new. Your your mind is set differently. You've been transformed. You've been given life. And then he comes to verse 12, and that's where we'll pick up now. You ready? Here we go. Verse 12 says this. So then, in response... To everything Paul has just laid out and more that's going to come in chapter 8, Paul says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Now, that's the idea of gospel motivation. In other words, when he says a debtor, he means if you are continually recalling and reminding yourself and rehearsing the truths of the gospel and who God is and all God has done in your life, if you continually remind yourself of that, it creates this awareness of this debt we have, this debt of gratitude. Not that we could ever pay it back, that's not the heart, but it is a motivation of gratitude that flows from the realities of the gospel. He says we're debtors. Now he says not to the flesh. You owe your old sinful fallen flesh nothing. Now it wants to take a lot. And your old flesh continues to demand a lot. And the flesh, when Paul says the flesh here, he uses the word flesh differently in the book of Romans depending on the context. Here he means that yet unredeemed 
sinful, fallen humanness, the residue of the old man, the way we think is still affected by sin. Our passions are still affected by sin. And that old flesh in us continually says, satisfy me, satisfy me, satisfy me. I want it now. I need it now. You deserve it. Go get it. It's all about you. It is the sin, selfish, focused self that's still active in you and me. Right? Don't look at me so spiritual. It's active in you. It's active in me. All of us. And Paul says, listen, when that flesh comes calling, which it does constantly, you owe your flesh nothing. Nothing. He says, you're not a debtor to the flesh. To live according to the flesh because the outcome of those fleshly desires and those outcome of those fleshly self-centered impulses impacted by sin, the end result of those things, though they may look pretty and they may say, oh, how good it feels now and how great it, they always lead to the same place. And Paul says, if you're living according to the flesh, death. Bring death. And listen, we said this a few weeks ago, when the child of God chooses to sin, something's going to die. Always. Relationships, opportunities, joy. All sin can do is ultimately lead to death. It's all it can do. Paul says, you have no obligation to that flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. A characteristic of those who don't know Christ is they're completely given over to the flesh. Earlier he said, but you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. End of verse 13, now this is huge for us this morning. We're going to camp out here, so I want you to hang with me. He says, but if by the spirit you are putting to death, are put to death the deeds of this body, the, the outworkings of our sinful flesh are always carried out in our body. The body is the instrument by which we sin. That's why Paul in Romans 6 said, do not present the members of your body as an instrument to sin. Present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. He says, put by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Here's your big idea number four. We're going to have two this morning, just two. The Spirit empowers us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. Now, I hope you're gripped here, and it's almost a jolt to you that you read something as bold as Paul says, put to death. <laughs> he doesn't say, appease the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't say try to find counsel for the deeds of the flesh. He says, put them to death. I hope this is eye-opening language because Paul's trying to be very clear here that life in the Spirit is joy, life in the Spirit is peace, life in the Spirit is all the fruit of the Spirit, and life in the Spirit is war. War. He says, if you don't understand it's war, then you're already defeated. And if you're a believer and the Spirit of God is dwelling in you and you're trying to follow Christ and by the Spirit you're walking with God, this week you felt the struggle and you felt the combat. 
And what you wanted to do, you were unable to do, or there was this constant pull against you, the things that you knew you didn't want to do, they just screamed at you constantly because that's the war and the struggle that goes on in the child of God. Now sometimes I think we're infected by some of the stuff that maybe we watch on places like TBN and all these false teachers that say, hey, if you come to follow Jesus, everything becomes roses and everything smells good and everybody's happy. Wrong. Paul says the Spirit of God now dwells in you and there will be a warfare and a combat and a struggle that wasn't even there before because before you lived according to the flesh, where was the resistance of the combat? It wasn't there. But now the flesh is still active, but the Spirit is dwelling within you and there's war. It's war. Paul helps us with this, I think, in Romans, I'm sorry, in Galatians 5.17. This is just a cross reference. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. He says this, so why, why the struggle? Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh, me, 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 now, 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 now. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Struggle. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. That's where every Christian lives, by the way. There's a struggle. Galatians 5.19, he goes on and he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. The, the, The phrase there, works of the flesh, I think is the same as deeds of the body that we see in Romans 8 in our text. So they're cross references to one another. Now the works of the flesh are evident. What do they look like? Sexual immorality, which is a good, healthy desire God has placed in every human being, corrupted by sin. By the way, Satan has never invented anything in his life. He takes the good things God has created and twists and perverts and distorts them. That's what sin is. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, envy, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Anybody struggle with envy this week? Don't look at me so spiritual. Come on. How much time did you spend on Amazon wanting the things you didn't have because somebody else had them, right? Oh, if my happiness is on the next side of this purchase, if I... You're kind of meddling in my business now, Pastor Mike. Drunkenness, orgies, the things like these, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the life that's characterized by these things, there is no evidence that the Spirit of God dwells in that person at all. But the person that is struggling, and there's a battle. Paul says that's the spirit in you wrestling and giving you energy and empowering you to put to death these sinful deeds of the body that are only going to lead you to death. Works of the flesh are these outworkings of sin in the body. We talked about that earlier, that the body's the place, if you will, in our functions of our body where we sin. That's, that's the arena where sin fleshes its way out. And by the way, that helps us to understand in our struggle with the flesh, you're not going to battle well if you're always blaming that which is out there somewhere. Does environment matter? Sure it can. There's temptations we need to push aside and we need to eliminate and move ourselves away from. But the seed of every sin is in you, (laughs) in me. Paul goes on, he 
or Peter helps us with this, 1 Peter 2.11. It's not on the screen. You just write it down. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, meaning we're not of this world, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Woo! Peter says there's a war waging for your soul. Paul said it this way. We looked at this a few weeks ago before he gets in chapter 8, verse Chapter 7, verse 22, he says, But I delight in the law of God, my inner being. Meaning the Spirit of God dwelled within Paul. He, he had this struggle. He, he wanted to do what's right. He wanted to honor God. He wanted to obey the Word. He wanted to walk with God. But I see a different, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. I know what's right. I know what I want to do. But man, my flesh just goes, me, me, me. Now, now, now. I want, want, want. He says, making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, and I think you can all relate to this. I can. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We said it last week. If you were the Roman recipients of this letter in that day, and you heard that phrase, body of this death, you knew exactly what Paul was alluding to. Because in that day, if you were a murderer, one of the penalties for known murderers were the body of the deceased victim would be strapped to the back of the murderer, and his penalty would be carrying around the dead, rotting carcass of the person he had killed. So you had a perfectly healthy body, a person walking around with the body of a dead man strapped to his back. By the way, that's our battle with the flesh. That's why Paul chooses this phrase. That's the picture of it. But then he goes on in Romans chapter 8. He says, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? And then he launches into chapter 8 and says, the Spirit. By the Spirit you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. By the Spirit there's power that you didn't have before. So as practical as I can get here on this, let me ask this question. How do we then... Put to death the the sinful deeds of the body. What does it look like? How do we do this practically? Because Paul's talking about sanctification here. Paul's talking about growth in Christ's likeness. He's talking about putting off the things of the flesh. He's talking about putting on the things of Christ. Particularly, he's talking about the negative aspect of putting these things to death. What does that look like? How do we do it? Putting to death the deeds of the body. I'm going to give you four statements really quick. These are not on the screen. You just write these down if you want. Number one, sanctification. Putting to death the deeds of the body, number one, is progressive. It's not instant. (laughs) There's no instant sanctification in the life of a believer practically lived out. It is day by day by day by morning by temptation by challenge day in and day out until Jesus comes and gives us a new body and we're glorified with him, right? There are some who want to teach, no, 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 if I could just ascend to this lofty spiritual plane, or if I could just get some kind of second blessing of the Spirit, the temptations of the flesh would decrease and all would be well. Paul says, uh-uh, I don't know where that is, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He says, be putting to death the deeds of the body. That is a present tense verb. Verb tenses matter, right, church? Why? Because present tense means it's ongoing, day in and day out. Ongoing, ongoing. Today, yes. Tomorrow, yes. Next week, yes. The process of sanctification is progressive. It's not instant. Paul helps us with this. We won't take a long time. Philippians chapter 3, Paul himself writes, not that I've already obtained, it, obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I don't know about you, but if the Apostle Paul hadn't arrived at a goal, I sure hadn't. <laughs> right? 
Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on day in and day out. There's this ongoing progressive struggle with the sin and this residue of sin in our life. It's progressive. It's not instant. Number two, sanctification is active. It's not passive. There are some, I think, teach faultly, falsely, okay, here's what it is. I just let go and let God, and everything's going to work out all right. Paul said, uh-uh, put it to death. There is a tension in the Christian life between, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God does it, God's doing it by Spirit, and you be putting to death the deeds of the body. This is a command to you and me, empowered by the Spirit. I don't understand that tension, it's there, but John Owen understood the tension, and he said this, you be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. In other words, this battle for sanctification in Christ's likeness that's a work of the Spirit does not mean that you are a mere spectator. It means you are an active participant in it, empowered by the Spirit with a power that you didn't have before. He says, put to death. It means a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to sinful practice. Put to death means to reject totally everything we know to be out of the will of God. To put out all the stops. It's interesting, this word put to death in the original language is thanatane. <laughs> you ready? At the risk of everyone being totally distracted here, we get the word thanatos from it, or thanos. If you don't know what that means, okay, I'm trying to be culturally relevant here. It's the Avengers movie, right? Thanos killed everybody. Oops, spoiler alert, that happened last movie. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> the original word here means complete annihilation. That's no different than Jesus saying, if your right eye is an offense to you and it causes you to stumble, pet it softly. Jesus said, if your right eye offends, you pluck it out. If your right hand offends, you cut it off. What does that mean? That's hyperbole to say, deal with sin aggressively or it will become after you. That's what Paul says here. So it's active in, in our lives. It's not passive. Number three, it's done. Sanctification is done in community, not in isolation. The monastic movement that said, I'm going to put to death the deeds of the body because I'm going to go, and I'm going to do it by going living off in a mon monastery somewhere by myself. It just doesn't work. Paul says, no, no, no. It's done in community. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. In other words, the worst place we can be is left to ourselves because I will always deceive myself and lie to myself and justify anything. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, all the enemy has to do to someone is get you alone. Because you deceive yourself. You lie to yourself. And the Spirit is in us, yes. And the Spirit is in my brothers and sisters that we need the admonishment and the encouragement from one another. I will seek my own desire when left to myself. I will break out against all sound judgment when I'm left to myself. Don't trust yourself. That's why we have groups. That's why we have community. That's why we have the Sunday gathering. 
That's why we're in community with one another in healthy groups are challenging and admonishing and encouraging. And I need that and you need that and we need that. The corporate gathering. John MacArthur said this about the corporate gathering. He said, we need weekly to be jerked back to God consciousness. We need to be jerked back to God consciousness. Which I guess means that we as the teaching pastors are the jerks. I'm not sure how that works, but anyway. So what does this look like? It looks like it happens in community, not in isolation. It's active, it's not passive, and fourthly and finally. This whole process of putting to death by the Spirit the deeds of the flesh. This is one statement, so you can write this down, is this. It is gospel-motivated, it is Spirit-empowered, it is word-saturated obedience. It is gospel-motivated It is spirit-empowered. It is word-saturated obedience. Where do you get that from? Back to verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Paul says the basis for fighting the flesh and the process of sanctification is rehearsing over and over and over the rich truths of the gospel and all that has been accomplished for you in Christ, like walking through the book of Romans together. And the reminder and the rehearsing that is all that has been done in Christ on your behalf compels and energizes and awakens our motivation is the gospel. It is spirit-empowered, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, His power, gospel-motivated, and word-saturated. What does that mean? Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. Does the, word, does the Spirit of God speak into the lives of every believer? You better believe it, and it's as clear as Genesis through Revelation. Right here it is. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And listen to me, this is battle language. Would you ever take someone and drop them in the front lines of battle without an offensive weapon? It would be foolish if you are somehow trying to fight this battle and walk in sanctification and the Bible is not a regular diet and a food for your soul, you're battling without a weapon. You don't have a weapon. You can't fight. If you don't have the weapon of the Spirit, listen to me, if you're not utilizing the weapon of the Spirit, then you are lapsing back into weapons of the flesh, and flesh will never beat flesh. Ever. You can't. Paul says there's a sword of the Spirit. It's the weapon of the Spirit. Psalm 119, just listen to these phrases. Psalm 119 says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Psalm 119.11, you know this. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might put to death the deeds of the body. Psalm 119.133, Establish my footsteps in your word that no iniquity will have dominion over me. Can we be honest? It's church, right? Some of you are wrestling and there is an iniquity that has dominion over you today. 
and you are trying to fight it with fleshly weapons. And the Bible says, establish my footsteps, my daily walk in the rich truths of the living word of God. And it will empower me to not allow any iniquity to have that dominion over me. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free by the Spirit. And the Spirit's weapon that He uses is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Feast on it. Pray through it. Read it in community, by yourself. Hunger for the Word, the sword of the Spirit of God. So we battle in community. It is active, not passive. It is progressive, not instant. It is gospel-motivated, spirit-empowered, word-saturated obedience to the Word of God. See that? So the Spirit empowers us to put to death the sinful deeds of the body. There's more. Now, I know we're not going to get through all these next verses. There's just too much here. We'll, we'll carry on into next week, but i got to touch on it. So I want you to look verse 14. Paul continues. The thought continues. So in this battle, this life in the Spirit, verse 14, he says, he begins the verse with, with the word for. That was the basis of your battling, I'm getting ready to tell you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are being led to battle against the flesh and pursue sanctification is giving evidence that you're truly a child of God because that's the Spirit in you. Verse 15, for, another basis statement, you did not receive the spirit of slavery falling back into fear again. You don't live in the fear of punishment. You live in the power of grace. For you've received a spirit, or the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we have been adopted by God, that we are children of God. This whole idea of sonship is here. There's no way I have time to walk through it today completely. We'll start and then finish it next week. But this idea that we have been adopted into the family of God changes everything for you because you are not fighting to gain a position in God's family. You're fighting from the position as a child of God. It's who you are. And the Spirit testifies to that reality. If we only understood the glory and the vastness of our adoption by God, Paul tries to explain that here. Now listen, one of, the, one of the things I love about this church that I get to be a part of is we, humanly speaking, we understand adoption here. Over the past few years, we've seen somewhere around 20 or more families adopt children into their family. My family understands adoption. We had the privilege three years ago of adopting two sweet little girls into our family that were not born into our family. They were born into another family. And we even have a, we have a family picture. There we are. Maya and Malia, two sweet little girls that we, by God's grace, we brought into our family. And many of you were that day, there that day to witness to that. And all the privileges and all the gifts that go with a new family. I want you to listen to me. As glorious, as glorious as human adoption is, 
God's adoption of us is infinitely greater. I want to tell you a story. I want you to look at it. You don't have to follow along. There's going to be some verses on the screen. I want you to understand this idea of adoption into God's family. And then we're going to go back to Romans 8 and apply it to our life. There are pictures of adoption throughout the Bible. God's put them there. Moses was adopted. Remember, Esther was adopted. One of the great pictures of adoption you'll see is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. The words are going to be on the screen. Quick story. Here's the situation. It's a picture of adoption. David is king. Saul, the former king over a previous kingdom, is dead. David has a question about, is there any family member left of this former kingdom? So he begins asking the question, 2 Samuel, verse, or 2 Samuel chapter 9. Again, I'm just going to read it, be on the screen. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, former king, former kingdom? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was a friend of King David. He had made a covenant with that he was going to honor his descendants. So in honoring this covenant that David had made, he said, are there any descendants in this old kingdom left that I can show kindness to? A, a guy comes to him, Ziba's his name. He says, there's still a son of Jonathan. Jonathan's got a son you didn't even know about. He's crippled in both feet. He can't walk because when he was a baby, there was a war going on. His nurse dropped him. He's crippled. He he lives in a place called Lodabar, which is a desert place. They can't even grow crops there. So you got this, watch, you got this man who's a part of a fallen, defeated kingdom. He lives in a place that can't even grow crops. He has no inheritance. He has no hope. He lives as a part of a former, defeated kingdom. And David says, I'm going to show kindness to that one. Watch. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker to the many of Lodabar. That's what I just read, verse 6. And here's the name you want to name your next son. And Mephibosheth. The name means shameful one. The shameful one, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Do you know why he fell on his face when he came to the king? Because if you're part of the previous dynasty and there's a new king in town and you get a call that you need to come see the new king, it usually doesn't turn out well. Mephibosheth is a part of the old kingdom of darkness. David calls him out and says, come to my house, come before me. And Mephibosheth falls on his face and pays homage and look what David says to him and David said Mephibosheth behold I'm your servant verse 7 and David said to him do not fear he's about to adopt Mephibosheth and he's about to give him not a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but a spirit of adoption into the very family of the king himself Do not fear, for I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'll restore to you, listen to this, I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. I'm even going to give you an inheritance, Mephibosheth. 
You don't even have the means to earn an income or till the land. But I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to hire people that are going to till the land for you, and then you're going to have it to give to generation after generation. I'm giving you an inheritance. Even though you are a part of a former kingdom. Grace. Now watch, it gets better. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That's humility in response to grace. It says, why in the world are you lavishing this love on me? Rather than entering in and saying, hey, let me tell you what I deserve. You deserve death. And he gets life. And he is blown away by the grace of David. Verse 11, and we'll wrap it up here. So, Mephibosheth, the shameful one. Ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That's you. It's me in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is testifying. You are a shameful one, a part of a fallen kingdom. You bring nothing to the table, but by grace I'm giving you a place at the king's table. And you will dwell there in fellowship and communion with the king. And as glorious as Mephibosheth's adoption is, yours in the kingdom and by the Spirit is infinitely better. Say, what? Look back over Romans 8 and we're done. Say, sure. Trust me. Sort of. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You are now a son that does not look to your father out of fear of punishment. You now have received the spirit. The spirit characterized by adoption. You are now a partaker of the very divine nature of God himself. It's not merely a legal transaction where a paper is signed, and, all that, and that's a good thing. It's not merely eating at the king's table, all that's glorious. God himself now dwells in you by his spirit. You are a partaker of the very divine nature of God. And the big idea, number five, is this, and we'll finish. The spirit continually bears witness that we are God's children the Spirit is at work in you, confirming and bearing witness that you are a child of God. In Roman adoption, for the adoption to be valid, it was mandated seven witnesses had to be present to witness the adoption. So that 10 years, 30 years, somebody wants to come and say, hey, you're not a child of God. Are you not a child of that person? You're not a part of that family. A witness would rise up and say, no, 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 no. I was there. I saw it part of the family, he gets the inheritance, he gets all that. Who is that witness for us? God says here, the very Spirit of God living within us bears witness that we are children of God. How does he do it? Two ways, very quickly. Verse 14, he leads us. Does that mean he leads us to find that parking space at Walmart I just can't find on that busy day? Oh, thank God the Spirit's at work. I don't think so. 
The leading of the Spirit here is directly tied back to verse 13 that says, By the Spirit you be putting to death the deeds of the body so you will live. The leading of the Spirit, no matter what it form it takes, is always ultimately to conform and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit is doing. That's why the Spirit empowers you to hate sin and love righteousness. That's why the Spirit empowers you to put off the things of the old man and put on the things of God. Because everything comes up under that of the Spirit is leading you to become more and more like Jesus. So the question for you is this. Is there a consistent, not perfect, killing, wrestling, putting off of those old selfish, lustful, greedy desires of the flesh? If that is you, you can say by the testimony of the Spirit of God, I belong to the family of God. That's the Spirit of God. And then in verse 15, he says, For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What does that mean? As the team comes on up and just begins to play, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There is a putting off the Spirit, leads us to put off the old sins, kill those sins, and there is a pursuit, there is a hunger, there is a longing to know God, my Abba, Father. And that longing and that desire of intimacy and tenderness, the king is on his throne, and we, like a little child, can enter the court and run up into his lap. He is our Father, that desire that is there for your heavenly Father is only there because of the Spirit. You didn't generate it. We saw last week, you don't even have the capacity to please God left to yourself. That's evidence of the Spirit. So this wrestling of putting off the deeds of the body, this hunger to know our Father that is the testimony of the Spirit of God that you belong to Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And all that comes with that, the inheritance of the children of God, we'll look at all that next week. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these truths this morning. I pray they shape us. God, I pray for the person here this morning who's Or they're wrestling with a false assurance of something that happened thousands of days ago and weeks ago and have no assurance today that the Spirit of God is in their lives. Lord, make that clear to us. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself as the Savior and the Lord. God, I pray faith for those in this room that don't know you. I pray assurance in this room for those that do. And they will press on in the assurance and the Spirit of God within us. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Won't you stand?